We have before us this morning a beautiful, a beautiful text. We're in Second Timothy, or um, we're in Titus two eleven through fifteen, and it is just. It's pretty amazing for a number of reasons. Last week we went over 1 through 10. It's all about multi-generational church and how that works out. And you've got the older women pouring into the younger and the older men. And this is how they're supposed to be. And the the younger men, this is how they're supposed to follow. And so he's giving designations. He's giving, as it were, uh, roles and responsibilities to everybody in the church. He goes through and he goes even down to the lowly of the lowless. to, To the slaves, people that had no... Um, real standing in society, and he even assigns function to them. But the difficulty on that is how do you follow through? How do you do these things? Let me read this, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul writes, picking up in the second chapter of Titus, starting in verse 11, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good, good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. See, the, the difficulty that we get into is, is, for whatever reason, we like lists of accomplishments. You want to be able to look and say, have I done this? If I do this, then I'm, then I'm good, then I'm okay, then I'm taken care of. Work, work is this way. You go into a job, your boss says, you've got to do these things. This is your rubric for perfection. You need to bring in this many more clients. You need to have this level of output. And, and, and we like that because it gives us something to aim for, right? It gives us something to aim for. We're not just left to our own devices wondering if we're doing well, wondering if we're doing okay. We like this, but we bring this into Christianity and we say, if I do these things and these things well, I'm okay. And so what we aim for too often is this lowest common denominator. We want to do the right amount, but we don't want to be a fanatic. We want to do you know, what it takes to get the job done, but nobody likes an overachiever. And, and, and the difficulty of that is, we, in some sense, we feel like we're called to this impossible task. You say, what is a Christian supposed to, be, supposed to do, supposed to be? Supposed to be like Christ. And you say, well, that's impossible. He was perfect. You've never, met, you've never met my family. You've never been in my job. You've never been me. You've never walked a mile in my shoes. It's, it's impossible. What you set before me is an impossible task. And so they set out, and they're trying to do it, and they're trying to do it, and they're trying to do all the right things, and they're trying to do all the good things, and they're trying to do all the noble things. But at some point, they get in the process, and they just say, I can't do this. It's impossible for me to do this. And they're finally on it. See, when they reach that point, when they get to that point, when you get to the end of all these things, and you finally realize you can't do it, then you're ready. See, Paul goes through and he has this amazing instructional thing in 1 through 10. He says, this is how you should be. In eleven fifteen, he says, this is how you can be that. 
1 through 10, he says, this is how you do church. This is what you are like. 11 through 15, he says, this is the power in which enables you to do those very things. See, it's not because you're so great. It's not because you're so talented. It's because God who saved you is sufficient for all of these things. Look at verse 11. He goes in, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. He goes through one through 10, and he says, this is what you should be like. Older men, don't be a scoundrel. Don't be a scoundrel. Don't be a curmudgeon. Don't be this person that everybody looks at and says, oh man, I just hate it when grandpa opens his mouth, or there comes that dirty old man again. Don't be that person. Old women, don't wear that scowl on your face. Don't be that person. And you're thinking, I love the scowl. It's my look. My whole life, makeup, waiting for the scowl. I got the eyeshadow, I got the lip liner, I got the fake eyelashes. I have honed and perfected the scowl. He says, don't be that person. Pour your lives into the younger women. And he gets into 11, he says, for the grace of God has appeared. This is what he's talking about. He says, the way that you're able to be those things, to do those things, to be involved in everybody else's life is because Jesus Christ has come. That's it. The reason that a church can succeed, the reason a church can do well, is because Jesus Christ has come. That's it. Somebody comes into you and they say, friend, how do you live your life this way? How do you face down such great adversity? How do you have a strong relationship with, with your wife? How do you give yourself to these things? You don't start off and say, well, you know, I wake up early every morning and I, I give myself to the dutiful study of the word and, and then I go through an hour of prayer and by that point I fasted seven or eight hours because I've been asleep. And then I go about and I break my fast in the ceremonial thing referred to as break fast. You might have heard it referred to as breakfast. <laughs> Somebody comes to you and they say, how do you live your life in such a way? The summary response that opens up a whole world of conversation for you is to say, for the grace of God has appeared. For the grace of God has appeared. Now, who does it affect? We read in the second half of this phrase that it affects all men. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Recognize that salvation is available to every man, woman, and child on the basis of one thing. Jesus. It's on the basis of Jesus and his sacrifice. We recognize that as we go through this and, and see this and, and recognize what we are called to, it is a daunting task. It is something that is overwhelming. It's something that makes us feel wholly unworthy. Look what he says. Jesus Christ has come for the grace of God has appeared, and this is what it came bringing, salvation. And this is who it brought salvation for, all people. This isn't a word and an, an, and an indication that all will be saved because to believe such a thing completely undoes all the teaching of Jesus. We recognize that a vast minority, minority of people will actually be saved. Narrow is the way. Narrow is the way. But salvation is made available through the blood of Jesus for all of humanity. Now check this out. What he breaks out in verse 12, he shows us the two functions, in some sense, of grace. There are things that we avoid, there are things that we bring in. There are things that we look at and we shun, we get out of our lives, and there are things that we want to bring into our lives. He starts with the negative first, verse 12. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. John, writing in 1 John, said it this way. You can flip over to 1 John 2, and verses 15 through 16. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He said, look, if, if you're disposed, if you are bent on loving the things of the world, it should call to question in your mind whether or not God is in you. This is what he says. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of or from the world. Recognizing the grace of God in our lives causes us to do two things. It, rec- it calls us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. You see, a Christian is called on the basis of having received salvation to shun ungodliness. It's not this call and, and, and designation that you are to be puritanical in your belief set, that you are to have this very rigorous and controlled set of environments that, that you run things through the, the set and say, ooh, I don't know, I don't find this on the list of things that I can do. But it's so much more individualized, it's so much more personalized for you. Your your walk, your relationship with Jesus Christ is such a personal reflection of him growing holiness in you. And so if, if, if the way you are in your relationship to Jesus has not changed from the moment he saved you, unless that was this morning, then you have to ask, what type of action is this grace having in your life? You recognize this grace. You recognize this grace moving in your life, this appearance of God, this salvation of Jesus moving in your life, and it is transforming you, it is changing you, and it is leading you. It is leading you to be appalled, to be disgusted with the ungodliness in these worldly pursuits, in these worldly passions. It doesn't mean having a well-paying job it's something that you should, sh- should shun. It's not that, that people walk into the church and say, where do you, where do you all live? You say, well, there's this, this collection of cardboard houses across the street. You see, because we all read this text and we decided we should all sell our homes and live in a cardboard village. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this critical reflection on those things in your life. When you go out and and, and you make decisions, when you go out and you choose the way that you spend your money, where you have your job, the way that you move in your family, those things that you set as values and responsibilities in your life, are they a reflection of you renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions or bringing them in and seeking to baptize them in your family? So you take this understanding of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and what you've done for what many of us have done in this country is bring that into our homes. We baptize it. We put a cross on top of it. And we say, this is what I want. This is what I want for me. This is what I want for my family. And too often, too often what that really is is pursuing worldly passions and ungodliness. There are many of us who would rightly surrender our lives for the advance of our country and the defense of liberties. But how many of us would surrender our rights for the advance of Christianity? It's a difficult thing to think through. 
What things are present in your life that reek of ungodliness and worldly passions? I got to tell you that as, as I sat and I, and I read this this week and I'm reflecting over this, this is a difficult thing to think through. I remember when I first started college and, and I wanted to be a dentist when I first started college. Now, it's not because I love teeth. That'd be a little weird. It's not because I wanted to look in other people's mouths all day. That would be not weird, just creepy. If that was my sole driving desire. The reason I wanted to be a dentist is because the dentists that I had spent time with all had things I wanted. Nice cars, horses, elaborate vacations, beautiful homes. That was the reason I wanted to do that. And so I, I, I found a way at the time to baptize it and to bring it into my life and said, oh man, if I'll do this, it'll, it'll open up a world of opportunity to me. People will be there and I'll have their mouths open and I'll just pour out the gospel on them and, and they're not gonna move because they're worried I'll hit a nerve. And maybe if they don't hit the right answer, I will hit a nerve. Probably not a whole lot of repeat customers in my uh, fledgling dental career. I wanted it because of what it would bring to me, what it would give to me. I never thought twice about whether the thing I was pursuing in any way was the direction God was calling me to. What I recognized I wanted in it was something that was tremendously high-valued in our society. It was success, both monetarily and career-wise. And I wanted those things to be in my life. And the, the call of this passage is, as we recognize the grace of God in our life, as you recognize the grace of God in your life, it calls you to renounce worldly passions. It causes you to renounce ungodliness. Now look what it causes you to do. We've seen the negative, let's move to the positive. Second half, it causes you to live in three spheres, the internal, the external, and, and the vertical to God. It causes you to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, as you recognize the grace of God in your life, as you recognize the sacrifice of Christ, what it has afforded you, how it has changed you, it causes you to be self-controlled. Now, this is something he spoke over and over and over again. We saw it first pick up when he described the elders. He said they need to be self-controlled. When it got into the older men, self-controlled. The older women, self-controlled. The younger men, self-controlled. Everyone, it would seem, in the house of God and the church needs to be able to exercise control over themselves. Now, this is why that's important. If you can't control yourself, if you can't control yourself, there's a cascading detrimental effect to everybody you encounter. There's a cascading detrimental effect to everybody you encounter. We read in James how difficult it is to control the tongue. In James writing, he says, the tongue is a world of destruction. It is set on fire by hell. If a person is unable to exercise self-control, it's clearly going to show up in their use of the tongue. And James talks about this over and over again. But how do you recognize whether or not you're giving yourself to an exercise of self-control. Are you the one that's evaluating this? And somebody comes up and they say, Aaron, let me ask you a question. Are you exercising self-control? And you're like, well, let me think about that. Absolutely. The way you find out largely whether or not you're exercising self-control is by opening up your life to the people around you. 
If you live your life on an island of independence and don't allow anybody to speak truth into your life, there's a decent chance that you are fooling yourself, that you are misleading yourself to believing that you've got everything taken care of and everything is fine. The greater transparency that we live out in our lives, the greater reality and the greater the perception of, of how we're actually doing in our Christian walk. And so if I go to Brad and I, and I go in and I see him at work and I observe the way that he interacts with his coworkers, with those people that are working for him, I recognize, I see how Brad is doing in pursuing self-control in his life. The grace of God, how it's affecting self-control in his life. And that is radically different than me just walking in and saying, Brad, how are you doing with self-control? What we really need is to take this idea that Paul gave us in Titus 2, this idea of transparency across generations where we invite people to come into our lives. We involve ourselves in the lives of those around us and we gently speak truth. And we go to people and say, would you come alongside me? Would you ask me some difficult questions about my marital relationship, about my work relationship? Would you, would you come alongside and help me in these ways? Would you help me to grow closer to Jesus? Would you help make the grace of God more manifest in the way I live my life by asking some difficult questions to me? Look, he says that you need to be self-controlled, you need to be upright, along with this idea of opening yourself up and being transparent to those around you is this idea that people around you should observe the gospel in your life people around you should, have, should be able to recognize the gospel in your life. They should recognize that there is something different in you. I've been to a number of, of, of funerals, of memorial services, that at the end, you find people that come up and they say, you know, I, n- I never knew that, 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 that Bob was a Christian. Worked with him for 30 years, never knew he was a Christian. All these things people have said about him, all these things people had said about Sue, I, you know, I, I never knew that, that he or she was a Christian. Whole life, worked 10 feet away from them, never knew. The gospel should make you work, should make you interact, should make you decidedly different. People should pick up on the fact that you're a Christian. They shouldn't ask with, with a sense of, of questioning, say, no, I'm sorry, are you a Christian? The way that you act should lead them to a bold declaration and recognition of Christ evident in your life. You should, be, you should be seen as upright. Many Christians undo the apparent work of Christ in their life based on the way they live around non-believers. Recognize the gospel should be present in the way you live your life. And look at this. The third one, he says that it should help us to be able to produce godly lives. Just as much as you evaluate yourself, just as much as the people around you are evaluating you, God is seeing everything you do. God sees everything you do. He looks right into your heart. He sees all of your intentions. He sees all of your hidden thoughts. Now, that is a terrifying reality. That's a terrifying reality. So that, that, that husbands, when your wife comes in and asks you to do something and your outward response, and you're like, absolutely, my dear. Inside, you're thinking, man, I wish she would have done it herself. She is driving me crazy. God's like, bro, I saw that. I saw that. Recognize that God sees your inward response, even though your outward manifestation or reaction might be decidedly different. And in fact, many times it will be. 
And what's that an indication of? It's an indication that you need to continue to press hard, continue to rest hard in the arms of Jesus. You need to continue to rely on him that the grace which has appeared might, be become, might become more manifest and real and present in your lives. That there are still areas and avenues of your life that you have yet to surrender to him. What's that a picture of? He's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. What a great assurance. What a great promise. What a great peace. That God doesn't come into Doug's life and say, Doug, you're really messed up today, buddy. You know what? I'm, I'm done with you. Instead, when we mess up, when we slip up, when we do things, we know that we should not. The grace of God is there, and we're resting in it. We're secure in it. Our salvation isn't maintained, isn't held up, isn't secured by my ability to do the good and the right thing day in and day out. Because, friends, if that's the case, I'm just going to have to give up. I mess up far too often. I slip up with, with too great a frequency. If my salvation is dependent upon me, or worse yet, if your salvation is dependent upon me, I'm sorry, you should find another church to go to. Because that's just not going to happen. I'm going to disappoint you, and you're going to wake up one day in hell if your salvation is dependent upon me. If your salvation is dependent upon you, you're going to end up in the same place, but your salvation, it rests securely in Jesus. Can you lose it? Absolutely not. Can anyone remove you from his hand? Absolutely not. He has saved you, we read in the book of Hebrews, to the uttermost. Not just to the other side of salvation. And he calls you in that reality. He calls you in that assurance to work it out. To live godly lives in this present age. Recognize that the world Paul wrote to was bent on the destruction of Christians. The the world Paul wrote to was bent on the incorporation of the sensual. You had a a desire. You had a lust. you, You... Go out and and fill it. Go out and fill it. Go out and and explore things to to the greatest potential that you're able to. Go out and, and do everything you ever wanted to do. Satisfy the flesh. This is the world he lived in. That sounds a lot like the world we live in. You you watch the news, you read through the newspaper, that sounds a lot like the world that we live in. We have this ridiculous understanding of where God is and where we are. I read an obituary last week and the friends of this woman were were talking about her passing and they said, you know, she's in heaven right now giving God a piece of her mind and setting some things straight. Every interaction you read of somebody when they encounter God in Scripture the response they have is, woe is me. Because when confronted with the glory of God compared to the sinfulness of man, the response is, he is going to destroy me. And rightly so. There's no place for this person that that looks up and screams at the heavens and says, God, what are you doing? You're getting these things all wrong. I can't wait to get up there and, and show him how he should have done things and done things better. We recognize that we are called to live godly lives in the present age. He's calling you to live decidedly different lives, both internally 
in self-control, externally in righteous living, that those around you see that you are upright, and then in godly living, that he would look at the inward reflection and manifestation of your heart and be able to tell that you are his child, that his grace continues to grow and be made bold in you. Now the question of duration comes up. Look at verse 13. He says, you do these things, you do these things as you are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We recognize that that, that in this, we see a couple of things. Theologically, we see that, that Jesus Christ is referred to as God, a clear indication of the deity of Jesus. He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But secondly, we see the duration in which you are called to live this way, to exercise self-control, to be upright, to live godly lives in this present age. And friends, it is until you quit taking breath. That's it. It's simply until you quit breathing. You wanted a requirement? There it is. How long should you continue to display the graciousness of God in your lives to, to inside, outside, and heavenly? Heavenward? How long? Until you quit breathing. It's until you quit breathing, until you no longer have life. Because this is what we're waiting for. Paul gives us a beautiful picture of it. Flip over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen when the glory of God is revealed, when it's made manifest, when everyone sees it. When everyone recognizes Jesus and his sacrifice and what he has done, this is the reality. This is what's going to happen. What's going to happen is that, in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What's going to happen when people see it? So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and, every, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. You see, when the glory of God is revealed, when those things that are happening in heaven, when those realities become realities here, what it causes everybody to do is to bow down to Jesus and to cry out, holy is he. Everyone will ultimately confess that Jesus Christ is Lord both those that received him in this life and those that rejected him in this life. Everyone will come to an understanding of exactly who Jesus is, but their reward or their punishment will be based upon the decision they made here. There's no second chance. There's no delayed judgment. Your eternal destiny rests upon decisions made here in time. But everyone, regardless of whether or not they live a life worshiping God or denying his existence, everyone will be forced to recognize who Jesus is. And they will be forced to declare that he is Lord. Now look at this. He goes in, he describes how long we do it, now he's going to describe exactly who he is. First half of verse 14, he says, who gave himself for us. Flip over to John, John 10, 17 and 18. Some have the mistaken assumption that Jesus' life was forcibly taken from him. 
Paul makes it clear here. Jesus reports in John 10, starting in verse 17, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. I lay down my life that it may be taken up again. No one, verse 18, takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus laid down his life. He surrendered his life. He laid it down for you and I. Was it forced to do it? He made the decision to surrender his life. The text tells us he gave himself for us. Recognize in verse 11 that, that we read that the grace of God has appeared. It brought salvation for all people. This is how it did that. Jesus laid his life down so that humanity might come to know him. He gave himself for us. For what purpose? Passage tells us that it is to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Flip over to 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. See more about this idea of redemption. He says, knowing that you were ransomed or you were redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest. He appeared in the last times for the sake of you. See, when we dwell, when we reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus, it drives us to work for him. Not because we think we're adding to our salvation, but because we are a people who are so thankful for it. So when you reflect on the sacrifice of God, when you give time and you think about that he died for me, he died for my family, he died for my sins, both of commission and omission, those things that I have done, those things that I have not done, when we dwell on these things, what it creates in us is this tremendous sense of thankfulness. You're thankful. The reason that you are so thankful, the reason that you give yourself to this understanding is because you recognize the great cost of his sacrifice. Look what he has redeemed you from. It says, from all lawlessness. This is the same idea that he got to before these worldly passions. And he has purified for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now this is pretty interesting. He, he, he calls us to something. What is he calling us to? He calls you out of lawlessness. He called you out of this licentious living, this living for self. He has purified you. He has made you wholly different. He has moved you from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. He has transferred you, the Bible tells us, from darkness and into light. And he has made us a people for his own possession. We are unique in that we are Christ's. We are not our own. But look at what he says. This people that are his, that are purified, that have been called from lawlessness, this people is particularized in being zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says this of himself. He says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. Jesus demonstrates and gives us a pattern for what it is to serve and for what it is to serve well. But yet we find ourselves still having difficulty doing these things. This is what we do. We've done the same thing. We find service that fits us, that is easy. And we go find that thing and we do that thing. You really like numbers, you're good with numbers. You say, man, I want to be on the finance team. You really like people, you're good with people. You want to be on the personnel team. You really like administration, you're good with that. You want to be on a group that, that, that does that. What you look for is service that doesn't cost you anything. In the church, for a long time, it, it, it propagated that. It brought that along. We found things that people were already good at that wouldn't be hard for them to do, and we called them to involve themselves in that particular thing. Now, there are certain things that I don't care how much you want to serve at it. Some of you are just not gifted for it, numbers being one of them, right? If, if, if the best you've ever done with numbers is counting bottles of Play-Doh, you don't need to be involved with finances. I'm sorry, I don't care how much you want to be involved with it because at the end of the day, I don't want the IRS showing up. I don't care if they come and and listen to the sermons, but what I don't want them to do is coming up and checking our numbers and saying, well, this just isn't right. This just isn't right. Service should cost you something. Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve. To what level did his service go? He served to the point where he surrendered his life. He served to the point where he relinquished all things that he died on a cross. He gives us in that a pattern of what service should be. You serve not just in your area of giftedness. You don't set limits and restrictions on your service. You serve for his pleasure, for his renown, as the grace of God is producing a desire in you to serve. This is what that is. The more time you spend worshiping Jesus, gathering together with other Christians, reflecting on the word of God in time in prayer, the greater calling he's going to place in your life. The more time you spend reflecting on his life, those things that he does, those things he calls people to do, you recognize that he's going to increasingly call you to involvement and sacrifice that is demanding and demanding. He might call you to go and serve in a foreign country. He might call you to to sell your home, to surrender all your possessions, and to live your life as an itinerant preacher. And some of you are thinking, I'm never reading my Bible again. If that's in there, tell me which book it's in so I can skip over it. I don't want these things for my life. I don't want these things for my family. You know how long and hard I've worked to get the things I've got? I'm not saying this is going to happen to you. But if, that's what's God, if that is what God is calling you to, then why wouldn't you want it? If that's what God is calling you to, then why wouldn't you want it? The God who gave himself up for you. The God who surrendered his life for you. The God who has made grace appear in you. 
is continuing to grow that grace. It's calling you to serve. You heard me say a number of months ago, we should never, no church should ever have a problem getting people to serve. The problem should be finding places for people to serve. It should never be a shortage of people. The problem should be finding new things for these people to do. This is why. If the gospel is at work in you, then you are being made into a man, into a woman that is zealous for good works. The Bible doesn't use the word zealous very often in a positive reference. Look at this. Zealous. It consumes you. It is part of your identity. It's part of who you are. People should drive down Wesley Street and say, that's that church of all those dirty zealots. And everybody said, zealots? Man, what are they zealous for? He's like, ah, you know, good works. The church should be so crazy about doing these good things, about serving, that we radically change and transform what the word zealot is defined as. Do you see that? Do you catch that vision? Now look at this in 15. Paul has been all through chapter 2, and he has told Titus what the church needs to look like. And on the basis of all these things, he gets in and says, declare these things. Declare that older women should be thus. Declare that older men should be this way. Declare that the church should be functioning in a certain capacity. Declare that the grace of God has appeared. It is enabling you to do these things. You can't do them on your own. Chase can't go into work on Monday and be this way just because he wills it to happen. He can only do this because the grace of God has appeared in his life. It is changing who he is. It's changing who he is. He says, exhort and rebuke with all authority. You encourage people to do these things. You encourage these people to avail themselves of the things which, by virtue of the sacrificial death of Jesus, are already theirs. Jesus has saved you. He's given you the ability. He's given you the drive. And he's given you the passion to go out and to do these things. It's in here. Avail yourselves of those things that he has given you. Make use of them and be useful. You're encouraging people to go out and do it. And you know what? He says, rebuke. Absolutely. You find people that aren't doing it. You find people that aren't living up to what the scripture calls them to be. And you rebuke them. Not so you feel more superior. Not so that they look at you and say, man, I wish I could be the rebuker. You do it. Because that's what the text calls us to do. We love one, or love one another well enough that we will walk into one another's lives and say, friend, I don't see this in your life. And we're open and we're transparent enough that that person who receives the rebuke doesn't respond and say, you know, I don't see it in your life either. Instead, they say, okay. Okay. See, a church that can rebuke well, that can have members speaking into one another's lives is a church that is healthy. What we don't want to do in rebuke is to make, fe- make people feel bad about their decisions, that they've somehow let us down. 
What we do want rebuke to do is to drive them to go back to Jesus, to go back to God and say, Father, forgive me. We want it to drive them to greater recognition of the call of holiness in their lives. It's not so that we can kick people out. It's not so that we can micromanage people's lives. It is the call of Scripture to be intimately involved in one another's lives and to care for one another enough that we go into this uncomfortable situation and we say, this is what the Bible says. This is what your life looks like. I don't see the two coming into accord with one another. That's what rebuke is. It's lovingly driving someone back to the text. It's lovingly calling somebody back to the realities of Scripture, comparing their life with what Scripture says and rooting out the disparity between the two. And he comes to the end of this text. He says, let no one disregard you. In the ministry of, of applying these things, we need to make sure that nobody looks at them and just dismisses them out of hand. And the call comes back on us too, right? The call comes back on us too. I don't care how many Sundays of uninterrupted attendance you've had in a Southern Baptist church or any church for that matter. You can read your Bible every day. You can come to church every Sunday. But if these things don't show up in your lives, what benefit is it being for you? It's not just what you know. But it's the knowledge and reality of those things producing fruit. The grace of God appearing in your life saves you, but it saves you for a purpose. It saves you for the purpose that you might be zealous, as we read here in Titus, zealous for good works. So a real quick self-evaluation you might ask yourself is, when is the last time I was passionate about doing something good for Jesus? And when is the last time you moved past passion to action? get a number of people that are all fired up that want to go out and they want to charge hell with a water pistol. I haven't seen anybody come into the church and ask me to fill their water pistol. We get a lot of people that, that are all charged up and fired up and they want to do tremendous things in our community. But that's where it stops. A people that are zealous for good works, they're not generators of ideas, but they're men and women that follow through on the leading of Jesus Christ for his glory. Amen? Amen. Amen.